sitting at the bank for 80 hours a week is just not, uh, again, nothing against it. It's just not for me. That's Navy veteran Mark McLaughlin talking about walking away from his great investment job to start Old Line Spirits. Coming up next, I'm Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. In Navy Federal, you can finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your auto purchase all through one convenient place. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash carbine. All right. Today we're talking with Navy veteran Mark McLaughlin and Arch Watkins, both EA6 NFOs. Uh, now, from what I understand, Mark, normally you and Arch are doing these interviews together, but Arch isn't able to make it today, so it's all you on the spot. And uh, do want to give you congratulations for being episode number 400. It's been Thank a phenomenal you. journey over like seven plus years. So <laughs> congratulations, you're number 400. I wish I had a prize for you, but I wasn't really thinking ahead, so... If I think of something, maybe I'll hit you up later. <laughs> so anyways, you, you had a, a great career in the Navy, um, did some phenomenal things when you got out, had a lot of really great jobs, um, and eventually gave it all up, gave it all up for entrepreneurship. So um, take us, you know, before we get to talking about that, take us back and tell us about your time in the Navy. Yeah. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having, having me on. I'm sorry. Arch apologizes for not being able to be here, uh, but we really appreciate this and, uh, you know, and honored to be number 400. Um, so yeah, the Navy, so to your, to your opening, uh, both Arch and I were Navy, uh, uh, Naval flight officers, uh, flying, uh, EA six P prowlers. For those, uh, listeners who aren't familiar, it's a kind of a blunt nose carrier based, uh, jet that the Navy and Marine Corps used to fly, um, and focusing on electronic attack, uh, that was a wonderful experience. Um, honestly, it's professionally hands down, uh, the best thing I have ever done or will ever do was being in the military. Um, and, uh, it's really forged, I think who Arch and I are as people in, in many, many ways. Uh, so I was in from 2001 until, uh, I left active duty in 2010, um, after filling my you know, aviation commitment, which I know you're familiar with that being, you know, quite a long time, uh, from, from your, uh, your time flying. And then, uh, you know, went from there, uh, and essentially where, where I was at the point in 2010 was that, you know, I, I loved the military. I absolutely loved flying. I loved the people I worked with. It was very fulfilling. Uh, but I wasn't quite sure that it was what I wanted to do forever. Um, the way I viewed it for myself, at least was that, you know, I was, you know, in my early thirties, um, the iron was hot to kind of take that military experience and, um, and transition it into a civilian, a different direction. Um, and in my mind, uh, if I stayed in for 20 or 25 or 30, uh, I, the opportunities would just change, right? The opportunities, the longer you stay in, I think are much more in the defense industry, which is wonderful uh, if that's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the opportunity to redefine yourself, I think became a little harder, the longer I stayed in. So that was kind of the reason I looked at getting out when I did, but, uh, the Navy was amazing. Um, you know, learned, uh, many, many life lessons, uh, some the hard way and some I was lucky enough to have uh, seasoned people <laughs> help me out before I really hurt myself. But uh, it was an amazing experience and I loved it. Yeah. So you seem like the kind of guy that had a plan as far as getting out. Um, what, what what did you end up doing when you first got out? And what was, because you had quite a good civilian career before you gave it all up for this entrepreneurial gig. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So my, my 
plan, when I decided I wanted to get out of the service, um, I looked at post 9-11 GI Bill had just become available. And I said, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to apply to some grad schools that are just out of reach. Given my undergraduate performance, you know, I should have, they should have laughed at me. Um, so I applied to Harvard, Wharton, and then University of Virginia's Darden Business School. And I thought, hey, if one of these groups is dumb enough to say yes, and hey, that's my, that'll, be, that'll be make my decision. I'll, 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 I'll pull the trigger and I'll go. And uh, UVA, uh, they, they gave me a chance. And uh, so I, you know, my wife and I said, hey, let's go do it. So I used the uh, post 9-11 GI Bill to go to business school to get my MBA. And that was the whole experience in and of itself, uh, which I'll come back to in a moment. But uh, I ended up in, a, in the finance uh, realm. Finance drew me in. Um, you know, part of it was, frankly, that uh, of all the career paths out of business school, the investment banking route was kind of the, uh, I viewed that as kind of the most grueling, the most intense, the most you know, kind of satisfied that kind of drive to prove myself that so many U.S. military guys have. Um, whether that was the right reason or wrong reason to do that job, I don't know. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, I went into investment banking and uh, it was uh, like two years of banking. Uh, I, I knew immediately from starting from day one, once I started at the bank, that it really wasn't going to be a long-term fit for me uh, for reasons that are probably, we could do a whole separate podcast about. Um, yeah, I learned a ton though. Um, in investment banking, it's, it's a lot different than a lot of people and a lot of listeners might expect. It's not like you know, buying and selling stocks or bonds. That's more trading, if you will. Uh, what I did, what most bankers do is more... Um, you know, financing companies, Hey, company needs to raise X number of millions of dollars to invest in a new plant or to hire new people or to acquire another company. You know, how do we help them structure the deal where they can get the capital they need to grow? And also we did a lot of um, sell side. So people want to sell their business. We try to find the buyer and, and basically, um, you know, work the deal to, to their maximum benefit. Mm-hmm. So it was a completely different world um, than, I, than I knew. And this will be kind of a theme, I think, at least in, in my story, is uh, one thing the military taught me well and that I've applied in the civilian world is, you know, you can always redefine yourself. You know, I showed up at day one uh, in flight school in Pensacola in, in 2001. I knew zero about aviation um, and through you know, hard work, diligence and, and putting myself out there like so many of us do, you know, eventually yeah, I became very good at it. And then, you know, when I went to business school, I honestly did not know, and I'm not lying, if I asked a buddy of mine in class one day, I said, Hey, when they talk about revenue, is that the money that comes in the company or is that what's left at the end? You know, I honestly <laughs> knew it was shockingly little. Um, and I was very self-conscious about that. You know, I didn't know any of these terms, but you know, I'd already redefined myself once and I had the, the military had taught me that if I can do it once I can do it again. And, and that's what I've done a couple of times since then. Same thing with the whiskey world is I didn't know a thing about whiskey, except I liked it. Um, but you know, it just had that drive and, and willingness to take a risk that I think a lot of us military guys have because we've had to do it, um, you know, in our military careers. Yeah. And so, so how many years had you been out of the Navy before you, you, you jumped ship into the world of entrepreneurship? I quit my banking job to start the distillery in 2014. So about four years, uh, okay. in between. So you're, you may not have been doing what you loved when you got out of the Navy, but you're pretty successful there. What, what triggered this, this entrepreneurial itch? Have you always been an entrepreneur or did something come from, come out of nowhere? It's yeah, for me, uh, I, I always knew I wanted to, well, I always had a, a, a suspicion that I would end up owning my own business. You know, when I was younger as a kid, my uncle owned a restaurant, I always thought that'd be cool. Uh, until he 
wisely told me uh, <laughs> how hard of a life that is. Not that I'm afraid of a difficult challenge, but that restaurant business, God bless anybody who can do that. It's a, that's a tough nut to crack and, and those who do yeah. uh, earn it. Um, but, uh, you know, always had the inkling um, when I left to go to business school, none of the big career paths really drew me in. I told you I kind of went to finance for a few reasons and, um, but I really wasn't all that excited about it. I just kind of said, Hey, this is the best option that I see available out to business school. But, um, you know, defining my own path and having my own business was always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, I actually, when I was in the Navy, I thought about starting a brewery. Um, and a few years later when I was actually looking to start a distillery, the reason I had shifted from beer to spirits primarily was just that there was at the time, it was a much bigger opportunity. I think, um, the brewery thing had kind of already, crested um and the distillery thing the, the whiskey thing was just starting to uh to become a big trend but uh, so i had that kind of inkling for a while and then really one of the one of the blessings in disguise was uh how much i disliked my banking job frankly um i think the money was great i mean i was making plenty of money um so if i liked that job better i probably would have just sucked it up and kept doing it you know hey, this is okay but the money's good but I was just very deeply dissatisfied with it. Um, that's not to say there weren't great people. It's not to say it's a bad job. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And because I was so unhappy, um, it just made the decision to pull the trigger, uh, that much easier. But, uh, but as far as, you know, really, I mean, it boiled down to two years of, of dissatisfaction was enough for me to know, I don't want to do this for 20 more. You know, it's just not for me. Um, so just, quit the job without much more of a plan than, uh, I like whiskey. There's an opportunity. I hope that I'm capable enough to pull it off. And then that was it. That there was, I didn't stop and make a business plan. I didn't have time. I was working 80, 90 hours a week at the bank. Maybe not always 90, but say 70 to 80 would be closer to typical. And then 90, if a deal was closing or something, just crazy hours, uh, basically work, sleep, work, sleep, maybe see my kids a little bit. Um, and, uh, there was no time to you know, to, to transition a plan from banking into, into this. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, do it or don't. And, and so I just said, all right, I'll do it. So where, where did the true idea for old line spirits come from? Just a love of whiskey. And I think that's what I'm going to do. And what were some of the first mm-hmm. steps in, in research and everything and getting started? Yeah. So our, our, the, the impetus was essentially a love of whiskey. Um, you know, I, I love beer, wine, whiskey, all those things are, are things that I think are, it's a fun industry. I like to consume all those things and each of them has their own appeal. Whiskey in particular for me has an extra special appeal because of just the time frame that takes to make a good whiskey. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, this kind of a romantic aspect of, okay, you put your blood, sweat and tears into this product, put it in a barrel and then wait years and years until you finally get this product that hopefully is very, very good. Um, so that kind of romantic aspect drew me in. Um, but, uh, really what, uh, from the dollars and cents perspective is, you know, it was very easy or very clear to me that what was happening in the beer world was going to happen in, in whiskey next and was starting to. So, um, the, uh, it just seemed like while still very challenging that at least the tide was moving in the right direction for me to jump in and take a risk. But I, so like I said before, I didn't really have a plan when I quit. I just didn't really have the, the luxury of time to do that. I had to kind of make a decision and just, you know, cut one cord and, and reach for the next, uh, next rope. But, um, I had a very, 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 uh, chance encounter with a gentleman at a distilling conference. I, I quit my job in March, 2014. 
And I actually was in Seattle four days later um, for a wedding and there happened to be a distilling conference in Seattle. And I decided, Hey, well, I want to start a whiskey distillery. I should probably go to this conference and shake hands and say hi to people and, and figure out what step one is going to be. Right. Cause I don't know anything. Yeah, perfect and, uh, uh, yeah. And I was sitting on a couch, uh, frankly, feeling sorry for myself because I, this is like day two of this conference and day one hammered home to me how stupid I was to kind of quit my job without a plan. <laughs> and, uh, like, oh man, like I knew I knew nothing, but I, I know nothing. And a gentleman like, okay, first, in the first thing you would do, down next to me. First things first, don't quit your job. Sorry. already did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Already, already done. Too late. Uh, you know, <laughs> For, tell your wife first. That's that's. I'll say that. I did that. I, 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 that that was the right move yeah. that I made. <laughs> but um, a gentleman sat down next to me on the couch at this conference. It turns out he lived about ninety minutes north of Seattle in a place called Samish Island, Washington, and he owned a tiny distillery. And he was looking to sell it. Um, he was a Vietnam vet, Army infantry. His business partner slash friend slash neighbor was a Navy Vietnam era uh, veteran. Um, and they were just making whiskey literally as a, a retirement hobby that happened to make them a few dollars on the side. It was, it was as small as small can be. Um, but we're sitting there chatting and he asked what I was doing at this conference. And I said, I'm from Baltimore. I'm a former Navy guy trying to start a distillery. This just seemed like the place to go. And he says, well, Hey man, I'm trying to sell my place. You want to come check it out? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, yes, you know, and, uh, it, it was, it was almost like I was looking for the hidden camera. It just seemed too perfect. But, mm. um, you know, a four or five weeks later, I flew back out there and this place was 2000 square feet. Maybe, um, it was a barn on Bob's property. Um, he was making this really wonderful American single malt whiskey, which is a very new category that Bob was at the forefront of, and he was doing it just on his terms. Um, and I loved it. And he was looking to sell the business because Jim, his business partner was terminally ill. So this went from being a thing that was a passion project and a fun thing to do with your buddy uh, but once Jim got sick and he couldn't really be there anymore, he couldn't be around the fumes, the grain, he couldn't help. Uh, now you're a 72 year old guy doing this on your own. That's not really fun anymore. So for them, you know, they had this amazing kind of small, but critical mass of a business, but they didn't want to die. Um, they wanted it to continue. They just didn't want to have to have the energy or the ability to do it themselves. So the timing was just wonderful that, you know, we were eventually invited out there to apprentice, uh, which is what we did. Jim had passed away, but we moved in with Bob, lived in his guest house, and Bob let us. Uh, apologies, my phone keeps going off here. Uh, you know, Bob let us live in the guest house and, and live there as long as we wanted. Um, you know, make whiskey every day from five a.m. till ten p.m. And when we were ready, or at least we thought we were ready, we 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 cut him a check, packed it up in a U-Haul, and, and moved it across the country back home to Baltimore. No kidding, phenomenal story. Yeah. Well, hey, Mark, hold, hold that thought. We're going to be right back. Take a quick break. We bought a few cars with Navy Federal over my 31 years as a member with their fully loaded car buying experience. Let me tell you, when you become a member of Navy Federal Credit Union, life gets better. You can finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your auto purchase all through one convenient place. They have low rates and pre-approval that's good for 90 days, so you know what you can afford while you shop. You can save thousands off MSRP with Navy Federal's car buying service powered by TrueCar. You can also get exclusive member savings with Carfax, Geico, and SiriusXM. They're always available with 24-7 member service representatives to answer any questions. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash Carbine. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Your actual savings off MSRP may vary. Navy Federal Credit Union is federally insured by NCUA. All right, back talking with Navy veteran Mark McLaughlin. Um, is 
Business partner Arch, Arch Watkins is not with us, but the both happen, happen to be EA6B NFOs, and we're talking about old line spirits. So, Mark, before the break, phenomenal story. You're able to um, intern uh, under these under these under the the remaining partner of Golden Spirits um, is what they had called their uh, distillery. Finished it all up, and you were able to pack it up and, and move it back home to. You were able to move it back home to Baltimore, right? Was it Baltimore? Yep. Um, so, what happened after that? Now you guys are definitely on your own. You've taken it all the way across the country, and here you go. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. Let me. Uh, here. Um, yeah, this is where the story you know takes a, a turn. In uh, now, this is ours, right? At that point. Um, you know, with the training wheels, the training wheels are off. Uh, once, once Bob shook our hands and, and said, you know, God bless. And, and we rolled out of his driveway. Um, and that was 2015, uh, when we, when we left Bob and moved back, back here. Uh, and a couple of things to share, I guess, to, to people listening who might be contemplating or maybe in process of, of starting their own business. Uh, and I don't mean these things to be discouraging, um, because, but I think they're important in that, one of the things that Arch and I um, had done, which I think many, many listeners on here will have done as well, if they're looking at their own business, is done a very in-depth business plan. You know, I told you before I left the bank, mm-hmm. I didn't do that. But once we uh, started uh, the business or, you know, once I quit the bank to, to do this business, I, I was very, very heavily involved in financial modeling and, and, and just trying to work out every detail of this business uh, to get it started and then what it would look like over the years. And, you know, as I'm sure a lot of people know is, um, you know, just like no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, no business plan survives first contact with reality. It just mm-hmm. changes. So, and I expected that, but one piece of advice we got uh, from a potential investor uh, early on, which uh, I, not in front of him, but after scoffed at him and it turns out he was, he was dead right. Was that it's like uh, he did not invest actually. He said, Hey guys, I think you got a good plan here, but you know, I just think you need more cash than you're trying to raise. And I think that gives me a little concern and so on and so forth. And Hey, he gave a straight answer, which I respect. And he said, some advice to you is whatever you have here on paper, assume that it's going to cost twice as much and take twice as long. And, you know, I shook his hand and said, thanks for the advice and, and walked out and in the car, Arch and I are like, no way, man. Like we, we got this, you know, there's going to be changes, but we, we've looked at this as deeply as you can look. And, and there's, there's no way that he's going to be right. Well, it turns out he was exactly right. This whole process took twice as long and cost twice as much money to get going. Mm-hmm. That said, the flip side of that is um, part of me is glad I didn't know that because maybe I would have been discouraged. But I think that even knowing that, I think it's uh, the other side of this is where there's a will is a way. And, um, you know, if, if, if you really, really do want to start your business, um, there's ways to get capital. There's ways to, to you know, be creative and, and make it come together. So expect that your business plan is never going to go uh, the way you expect it, but expect that you'll be, uh, you know, you'll have the, uh, the intelligence and the, and the drive to, uh, to adjust. And just like in the military, you, know, you have to, um, that's just how things get done. Right. So uh, at any rate, um, you know, we moved to Baltimore and, and, and it, we had a nightmare finding a location and we were in one location that we were going to, you know, have the business in and we had signed a temporary lease and invested money in an architect because we were, you know, getting ready to build it out. And there was a massive problem with the plumbing that they hadn't disclosed to us until really too late. Mm. Well, that set us back, you know, six months or eight months or a year, or about eight months. You know, all, all these, you know, nightmares with, 
you know, the facility and all those sorts of things you just couldn't really predict. Um, and it was a big, it was a big challenge. And yeah, finally it took about two years to get open, um, at the distillery here in Baltimore. And, you know, kind of like I mentioned earlier, where one of the things that was a challenge, but also an opportunity was how much I didn't like my old job. It kind of forced me into something that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this issue with the facility just being such a, a, a headache to get open forced our hand to do something we didn't expect to do. And it ended up being a, a big positive for us, which was, you know, we always envisioned we'd take Bob's little distillery and move back to Baltimore and grow it. And we always knew we might outsource some production along the way to help supplement our internal production and what uh, we had to do, because we had no place to make whiskey for two years here in Baltimore, uh, was we actually find a partner earlier than, earlier than we expected and start making whiskey somewhere else. And that's what we did with a place called Middle West Spirits mm-hmm. in Columbus, Ohio. Um, great people, um, great distillery. And those guys were willing to let us basically make our whiskey with them on their equipment. Um, and that was a big thing for us, A, because you know, we, we needed to start making whiskey. We were selling the whiskey that Bob had handed over to us, you know, that came with the distillery. So we were depleting inventory, but we weren't at the, up until we met middle West, we weren't replenishing it or, or, or let alone, pl- you know, adding in more inventory for future growth. Mm-hmm. So just that alone was big. But what we found out once we went out to middle West is that, you know, learning how to make whiskey from Bob was amazing. Uh, but it was kind of like making a cake with your grandmother. You know, she knows, step one, step two, step three, she knows the ingredients, she knows the temperature in the oven, all those things. But, you know, at least my grandmother didn't know the chemistry, right? She didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of Bob. Bob had, had done the hard work. He had, you know, he had gone through in trial and error. He had made bad whiskey for a couple of years and finally figured out how to make good whiskey to, through his own blood, sweat, and tears, which is amazing. But Bob didn't really care about the chemistry. He didn't really care about efficiencies. You know, it just wasn't really where he was in life. So the guys in Middle West, they're chemists and engineers, and they, and they helped us, and, and distillers, obviously, hmm. and they helped us deconstruct like, what we had and really helped us you know, understand it. So they were kind of like the master's level course in distilling that we didn't even know we yeah. needed it until we went out there. And that just has, has made a tremendous benefit, uh, has been a tremendous benefit to our business that you know, I think we got to professionalize ourselves earlier than we really uh, ever would have otherwise uh, because we were forced to go out there and work with these guys by circumstance. And it ended up being a great thing. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, you could use that as analogy for so many different kinds of businesses. There's a lot of businesses out there that just figured it out by trial and error. You know, if something didn't work, they just came back and tried it at a different angle. That sounds like what Bob by trial and error just figured it out on his own manually the hard way but when you're going to try to turn it into a really legit business, we have to actually know what's happening here though. Uh, and um, there's so many, so many, there, there's a lot of successful small to medium sized businesses in, in the U S that it, it totally hinges on the owner's knowledge of everything. And that that's in a real da- That's that could be really dangerous to the longevity of the business. If, only if everything's still relying on the owner, the owner's knowledge or the owner's involvement even. Um, So there's a a really cool analogy you used there about um, how Bob had, had made his whiskey whiskey successful. And and are you still making the original whiskey that, that that you uh, you learned how to make from Bob? 
Yes, with some adjustments. So um, it, it's it's an American single malt whiskey, which for those of you who may not be as familiar, it's a new category. And it's the best way to describe it simply is it's kind of combining the ways of making a single malt scotch and a bourbon. Um, so we're, we're basically using the grain you would use to make a single malt scotch, which is 100% malted barley. Um, and we're aging it in the, the fashion of a bourbon, which is in a you know first time use virgin American oak barrel. So mm-hmm. it... Uh, it, it's like a think of a uh, yeah in between a scotch and a bourbon it's not smoky um it really does appeal to bourbon drinkers um who actually didn't realize that they can actually like a single malt because single malts you know sometimes people think oh i don't like scotch it's smoky it's this that or the other um and it really is a, it's a wonderful category so yes we are still making that same whiskey that bob and jim made uh with what we think are uh, yeah, improvements would not be a fair word. I'd say, well, there's certainly improvements in process and efficiency. Absolutely. As far as flavor profile, it's a little different. Uh, it just is a, we, you know, we took what Bob had and we had certain things about it that we, we wanted to make a little bit more our own. Mm-hmm. Um, so without getting too kind of whiskey nerdy, um, we, uh, we changed the, the profile um, that we mash in the grain with the mash is where you put the grain with the hot water and basically, you know, break down starch into sugar to get something mm-hmm. to ferment. And we do that in a, in a very different um, temperature profile, which gives us different flavors. Um, so if you were to line up our whiskey and Bob side by side, you definitely see a very, very close comparison of, Hey, these two are definitely sisters. Um, but, um, but the flavor profile um, is slightly different now by design. Yeah. Okay. So Mark, we're getting close to the end of our time here uh, um, with old line spirits where are you guys at right now? Like, like, give us a, give us some numbers. Like how, how much whiskey have you made? How much have you sold? Um, where you guys, where do you see your guys, where do you see yourselves in another year to five years? Sure. Uh, so, uh, we're still pretty small, although for American single malt, we're actually, believe it or not, one of the bigger ones cause it's such a new category, but, uh, we've got in our warehouse in Baltimore, it's 25,000 square feet. We've got about 2000 barrels. Um, so we're investing heavily in, in growth cause you got to put it in the barrel and then you got to wait. Um, and we're making more every week, every year. Um, as far as sales, like this year, uh, 2021, we, sh- we hope to, uh, sell, uh, 4,000, uh, cases, um, and next year, 2022, as we expand into new markets and, and grow the markets we're in, uh, we expect to be closer to 8,000 actually, uh, which is an aggressive jump, hundred percent growth, but, yeah. uh, we do see a pathway to that with uh, new markets and then, uh, cultivating the ones we're in. Um, we're still, well, I'd say we might be profitable this year, you know, profitability in the whiskey world takes a while to get to. So we know that we built our financial plan around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from a cash perspective, we're, we're stable, but we certainly, uh, you know, I don't know we'll be profitable this year or next year, we think, which has uh, been a long time coming. Uh-huh. How many employees are you up to at this point? Right now, full-time, only five, uh, five full-time, maybe eight part-time. Mm-hmm. And then we're actually part of a, a ventures portfolio. We have a big investor uh, who's invested in us called Constellation Brands. They own Corona, Negro Modelo, and uh, brands like a bunch of wines oh. and whatnot. Um, so they were part of their ventures portfolio. And what that has allowed us to do is actually team up with some other uh, brands in the portfolio to share salespeople. So mm-hmm. our salespeople in New Jersey and Colorado and Massachusetts and New York, for example, are actually... Uh, they're, I don't count them as employees of ours because we kind of share their time. Sure. Um, so if you include them part-time, full-time, we're at like almost 20, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty lean um, in general as far as five full-time. Now, is your, is your distillery, your 2,500 square foot distillery, is it open to the public or is it strictly for making whiskey? 
Uh, no, it's open. It's at 25,000 actually. It's pretty big. Um, oh, 25,000. Wow. Um, yeah, it's open to the public right now. We're open Saturdays and Sundays. Um, it, our website is uh, oldline, O-L-D-L-I-N-E, oldlinespirits.com. Awesome. So you can check out the hours on there. We have a full bar actually. So uh, we carry obviously our own products, but we also carry beer and wine, uh, which mm-hmm. is nice. That, you know, if a group of people want to come in and one person doesn't drink whiskey, well, sure. there's a beer and wine to be had too. Um, so that's certainly a big part of our business, uh, is being that kind of, you know, that customer facing element to it. And then, um, yeah, so Saturdays and Sundays, we do private events on other days. And so as long as it's taken and as, as much of a struggle as you've had, which isn't, isn't bad by a lot of entrepreneurial struggles compared, could you imagine going back and working at the bank? No, no, honestly. I mean, I, I, I thought about that once in a while, like if this didn't work out, you know, what would I have done? <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think what I've realized myself is that up until I went to the bank, I was very, I was more concerned to think about in some ways image, right? Not, not that I'm a narcissist, I don't think, but just that, that, you know, I want to do this job that like is oppressive to people. Well, I should do a job because I want to do it. Right. So uh, I can think of a million things I'd rather do that pay a lot less, but I'd be a lot happier doing than the bank. Uh, luckily for me, this is, this project has been a passion project and I love it and it's knock on wood looking good. So I think uh, I won't have to make that decision, but no, it wouldn't be uh, sitting at the bank for 80 hours a week. It's just not, uh, again, nothing against it. It's just not for me. Awesome. Well said. All right. Well, um, if you have to, if you're talking to that veteran who just got out or is getting ready to get out, looking to start their own business, they asked you for advice. What comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, I think that the biggest thing I think would be, um, you gotta be, well, I don't want to say you gotta be all in cause I don't want to suggest somebody quit their job. Like I did. I say, uh, understand really what it is you want to do and what you want to get from this. Do you want to make a lot of money? Do you want a lifestyle business? That's what do you want this to be? That's usually important. Um, and I think understand that honestly, one thing I've learned is that, that the belt can be tightened quite a bit, you know, um, and you can look at, you know, you decide to quit your job and take a risk, um, it can be scary looking at, you know, that drop in pay and it is scary, but also I think that a lot of people don't realize until they're forced to do it, how tight you can bring that belt. Um, how, how many nights a week you can feed your family beans cause it's uh, inexpensive. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but I think really knowing what it is you want to do and what you want that to be, um, whether it's lifestyle or something big that you sell to a investor someday or something in between, uh, understanding what it is you want to create, I think, as you start out. Um, at least generally speaking, is, is very, very important. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks for sharing your entrepreneurial success story. We look forward to seeing the future success of Old Line Spirits. And um, if ever if you're up that way in, uh, in Baltimore, we'll have to stop by and check it out. Open on Saturdays and Sundays right now and maybe more in the future. Episode 400 is a wrap. These two veterans are Oscar Mike. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike.